0: It's, uh, it's lovely to be here with you this morning and um, to look at Jeremiah chapter 1 together. Uh, let me pray before I begin. Our Father, we praise and thank you that you speak by your word. We pray that you please give us ears to hear and hearts to obey this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to start by asking you a question. And the question is, how optimistic are you? Are you naturally a, a, a sort of a, a glass half full kind of person? Or are you a glass half empty sort of person? But, but even if you're uh, very optimistic, how do you feel about our future at the moment, at this point in time? Because it really feels, doesn't it, like there's an air of pessimism going around. It feels like the future isn't bright. I actually preached on this passage a year ago. And at the time, the the two headlines in the newspaper said this, brace yourself for a year of travel chaos, Ryanair boss warns. Or how about this one, Bank of England raises interest rates to 1.75% and warns of long recession. Now interestingly, neither of those things quite came true and yet at the same time a week ago we had thousands and thousands of flights grounded because of air traffic control chaos the bank of england rate is now 5 and a quarter percent and i read an article on thursday that was basically asking why is everything in britain broken it does just feel like there's this note of pessimism in the air our future looks poorer than our past. But if that's the case, I think that can really help us as we come to the book of Jeremiah this morning, particularly as we come to Jeremiah chapter 1, because Jeremiah lived in times that were undeniably depressing. Not for nothing is Jeremiah often called the weeping prophet. Now, I'm not a prophet, and so I don't actually know what the future will bring any more than those headlines that weren't quite accurate. So I don't know if we're living through a short blip and then things will keep getting better, or if we're standing at the cusp of the long decline of our civilization. But either way, through Jeremiah, we're going to hear God's word. And God's word is both realistic, but it also brings hope. It brings hope even in times of total collapse. And so this morning, as we look at Jeremiah's calling in chapter 1, and we tune in to God's message through him, there are three points that I'd like to look at. And those are that God speaks when the world is falling apart. That God warns of judgment. And that God's plan is resurrection. So first, God speaks when the world is falling apart. Well, like anywhere else in the Bible, Jeremiah is written in a particular time and place. It comes in a particular context. And that's what it opens with. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. The word of the Lord came to him in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, son of Amon, king of Judah. And through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. Down to the fifth month of the 11th year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah. When the people of Jerusalem, went into exile and those last words of chapter 3 which we could so easily skip over hold within them a whole world of grief when the people of jerusalem went into exile now for those who are rusty on their late 7th century history 7th century bc that is here's, here's just a very quick summary of everything that's entailed by those few verses So in 640 BC, at the age of 8, Josiah becomes king of Judah. He reigns on David's throne. And at the age of 18, anyway, Josiah reigns on David's throne. And at the age of 18, he begins some major reforms. So he finds a copy of the Law of Moses, which was probably the book of Deuteronomy. And he goes about freeing the country, both from their political dominance which Assyria had over them at the time, but also the idolatry that came with belonging to Assyria. You see, in those days, when you allied with a nation, you also allied yourself with their gods. And so, Josiah begins these reforms, and two years after that, it's at the height of these reforms that Jeremiah is called. That's where we are in Jeremiah chapter 1. Now, that is a significant year in lots of ways. It's also the year that Ashurbanipal dies. He was the last great king of Assyria, who were the superpower at the time. And so there's a collapse in Assyrian power. There's now this power vacuum in the area. And so in 612 BC, under Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians defeat the Assyrians. And then a few years later, in 609 B.C., as you can read about in 2 Kings chapter 23, Pharaoh Necho of Egypt goes out against the um, Babylonians to the aid of Assyria, and Josiah tries to prevent this. So he goes to fight against Pharaoh. Josiah is killed in battle. But then a few years later, Babylon defeats Egypt. And so what happens is that Josiah's son Jehoiakim becomes a vassal of Babylon. In 597, he rebels against Nebuchadnezzar, comes with his armies against Jerusalem. He dies or is murdered, and his son Jehoiachin surrenders to Nebuchadnezzar. And that's the first exile. So Jehoiachin and others like Ezekiel are taken off into exile. Zedekiah, another son of Josiah, is made king. Tragically, after 10 years, Zedekiah rebels. Nebuchadnezzar comes back, besieges Jerusalem. The king is killed. The temple is destroyed. And anyone who is, or everyone who is anyone, is taken off to Babylon in exile, but not Jeremiah. Well, I'm almost certain you didn't follow all that. The short answer is, That Josiah becomes king at the high point of Judah's history. Probably the best point in Judah's history since Solomon was king. And 40 years later, he witnesses the total destruction and collapse of that kingdom. Those were the days that Jeremiah lived through. The utter collapse and destruction of David's kingdom. I was trying to find a a modern example that I could compare it to, and I'm afraid there just isn't one. It's the virtual disappearance of a country in just 40 years. One commentator described it this way it's a disaster that represents nothing less than the collapse of the world, cosmic crumbling, and the end of a culture. Long-standing institutions associated with God's blessing, cherished belief systems, and social structures that appeared invincible had come to a cataclysmic end. And those are the circumstances of Jeremiah's ministry. It's in those circumstances that God chooses Jeremiah to speak for him. During times of crisis, the no end of experts, are there? Those who appoint themselves prophets and, and who try to speak authoritatively about what is happening. Uh, if you think back to March and April 2020, it seemed to me like everyone online was suddenly an expert in infectious diseases at the time. Well, Jeremiah is not a self-appointed prophet. Look at verse 4. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah is not self-appointed. He's appointed by God. In fact, Jeremiah doesn't want the job. Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. But that's the point. God wasn't looking for an expert. God appoints Jeremiah so that we can hear God speak. You see, Jeremiah isn't an analyst. He's not a a social commentator. He's none of those things. Jeremiah is simply a messenger. And God chooses Jeremiah so that we hear, not Jeremiah, but God speak through him. Jeremiah must go where he is sent and say all he is told to say. The very words in his mouth, verse nine, are put there by the Lord if he is weak and insignificant, and he is, he's he's the son of a backwater rural priest, well, that is intentional. It's intentional, so there's no doubt to them and to us today that this is God who is speaking. And that is so relevant for us. You see, if Jeremiah spoke only his own words, as thoughtful as they may be, then this morning we could decide to take them or leave them, very much the way that you might take or leave Those who write in um, our newspapers today. They might be right, they might not. But if Jeremiah speaks God's word, then that is a very different thing. Then even the nations, verse 5, even us sitting here this morning need to sit up and take notes. You see, four times in chapter 1 alone, we have this phrase the word of the Lord came to me. God is speaking. What does God have to say? Well, the first message from verse 11 just underlines that it is God who is speaking. Now, this probably seems like a slightly strange incident to us. It could be that Jeremiah is seeing a vision, but probably the word of the Lord comes to him as he's looking at an almond tree or or maybe a stick made out of an almond tree. And you might notice that your Bible has a footnote here at verse 12, because there's a bit of a pun going on here in Hebrew. So God asks Jeremiah what he sees, and Jeremiah says something that sounds a bit like, I'm watching a watcher branch. And the Lord responds, you have seen correctly, for I am watching, to see that my word is fulfilled. I wonder if if Jeremiah had lived today. It would have been a little bit similar to the Lord speaking to Jeremiah as Jeremiah is looking at some spectacles. The point is that that not only does God see, so God knows exactly what Jeremiah is doing, but he's also in control of everything. So he's able to bring about exactly what he desires. In this case, that Jeremiah is looking at an almond branch when the word of the Lord comes to him. And so as Jeremiah speaks, it's not just that he's passing on a message from the Lord. But of course, God's words will certainly be fulfilled. God speaks when the world is falling apart. But what is the message that he has? Well, our second point, God warns of judgment. Verse 11, the word of the Lord came to me again. What do you see? I see a pot that is boiling, I answered. It is tilting toward us from the north. Again, it could be that Jeremiah is seeing a vision, but more likely he's he's looking at a domestic scene, a pot boiling, as the word of the Lord comes to him. But this time, the meaning is altogether more ominous than the last message. You see, the pot represents God's judgment, against his people. And just as it teeters at the point of tilting over and threatening to overflow everything in front of it, just imagine the perspective of an ant looking up at this boiling pot. So God is bringing enemies from the north against his people. Verse 15, their kings will come and set up their thrones in the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. They will come against all her surrounding walls and against all the towns of Judah. Now these kings are not coming against the Lord, which is what we might expect. No, the Lord is bringing them to bring judgment against his people because they have forsaken him. Instead of worshipping the Lord, they had turned to idols. You see, the strange paradox that runs through the book of Jeremiah, I think one of the things I love about Jeremiah himself, is, is that the greatest danger for Jeremiah isn't actually from the barbarians at the gate. Because Jeremiah speaks for the Lord and they don't have an argument right now with the Lord. Now the opposition for Jeremiah will come from those who are opposed to the Lord from amongst his own countrymen. The kings, the priests, even the common people It's against them, verse 17, that he will have to stand firm. Verse 18, that the Lord will make Jeremiah a fortified city, an iron pillar and a bronze wall. You see, Jeremiah will warn them that judgment is coming. And so they will turn against him, but will not overcome him. Now I said... Perhaps it helps to be gloomy about the world today as we come to Jeremiah because there are similarities between Jeremiah's world and our one. The country we live in has for centuries been a place where there was a very basic shared confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. Even if not everyone would have acknowledged him as their personal Lord and Savior, that was still the air that everyone breathed. In recent times, authors like Tom Holland in his book Dominion or or Glenn Scrivener in his book The Air We Breathe have, have shown how so much of what our society takes for granted is actually the fruit of Christianity. So Glenn, for example, in his book lists equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, and progress. All things that are actually the fruit of our Christian heritage. And I think to Glenn's list, we can add the fact that that basically the shape of all our significant institutions, from parliament to our courts to schools and universities, even marriage and the family, comes from Christianity. But while we still enjoy some of those fruits of Christianity, our country, like Judah in the 6th century B.C., has increasingly forsaken the God of our fathers. I don't think it's controversial to say that the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord is no longer meaningfully held by most people. And what that means for our society is that we're, we're living in a society that was built on the rock that is Jesus and his word. As Jesus describes that in Matthew 17. And we've uprooted from the rock and moved it and dumped it on the sand. We've effectively knocked away the foundations our society was built upon. It's a great experiment to discover what will happen when the rain comes down and the streams rise up and the wind blows and beats against that house. see, what happens when we move away from our Christian foundations? Now, not even those, or or I should say many, who are not Christians, like Tom Holland, are starting to realize what this means. So take, for example, the post-liberal feminist, Louise Perry. She's written a book called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. And she basically argues, very persuasively, I think, that the sexual revolution has been bad for society, and for women in particular. Now that's quite a thing to say today, when the the so-called sex positive message is almost accepted wisdom in our society. Turns out that the sexual revolution is good for everyone except women in particular, children, and most men. Now Louise Perry isn't a Christian, she's making her arguments from evolutionary psychology to try to get her point across. But she ends up arguing for what are basically Christian sexual ethics, above all the goodness of marriage. And actually, in a podcast with Glenn Scrivener, she she effectively concedes that point, that everything she is advocating derives from Christianity. The question, though, is is whether apart from those things, whether apart from Christ, her projects can work. Can we have Christian sexual ethics apart from Christ? The signs aren't good. Since 2020, the institution of marriage as a Christian institution has essentially been abolished in this country through the enactment of no-fault divorce. You see, that's changed divorce from being a tragic necessity when one partner in a marriage has already broken their vows beyond fixing to a matter of convenience. I mean, imagine if our marriage vows reflected that reality. Couples would say, until death do us part, or I decide I feel like a change. And actually, the same is true for all our institutions. You see, it's not simply that politics or university or schools are increasingly difficult places to be a Christian. It's that the unwritten foundations that they were built on Things like the rule of law are being abandoned. And the ultimate consequence of this could be terrible. Obviously, as we read Jeremiah, we also are confronted with our own attitude towards God. But I think as we look at Jeremiah chapter 1 and the words that God gives Jeremiah, The Holy Spirit reminds us of the primary task that God has given to his church. You see, at the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the task of prophecy is now given to the whole church. And just as Jeremiah was sent to bring warning of God's judgement against the people of his day, we are too sent with a prophetic task to proclaim the message that Jesus Christ is Lord perhaps to our society, that Jesus Christ remains Lord. That is the task of the church in every age. Yet as Jeremiah shows us, in an age where people are turning their back on the Lord, there is an increased urgency to that task. Jesus Christ is Lord, and his words are the only rock on which the wise builder builds. The alternative is to invite disaster. And so as we do that, we want to try to do it as winsomely and persuasively as possible. And I think that they're good examples that we can see of how to do that. But I think it is a task that also requires the same stubbornness and courage of Jeremiah. Remembering that the promise of Jeremiah 1 verse 19 is echoed in in Jesus's words to the church. That surely he is with us always, even to the end of the age. But this leaves us a pressing question. If our task is like Jeremiah's, then are we looking at the same outcome? Jeremiah's preaching didn't stop the collapse of Jerusalem. He witnessed the end of a culture, long-standing institutions associated with God's blessing coming to a cataclysmic end. Well, what will be our fate? Well, God speaks in times of decline. God warns of judgment. But our final point this morning, God's plan is resurrection. When God calls Jeremiah, I think he summarizes Jeremiah's mission in Jeremiah 1 verse 10. I think if you want to understand the whole shape of the book of Jeremiah, that's a good place to start. And that verse says this. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. A year ago, I moved into a house with a garden, and as I'm discovering, sometimes in order to plant something, you need to take out what's already there. You need to uproot the weeds, or you need to take out the dead tree to put in a live one. Or if you want to build, sometimes you can just do redecoration, but other times you need to tear down in order to build something new. And that is not simply Jeremiah's mission, that is God's mission. You may remember how in John chapter two, Jesus goes to the temple in Jerusalem and finding it corrupt and full of money sellers and people selling animals, he made a whip of cords and drove them out from the temple courts. And when the Jewish leaders challenged him, asking him what authority did he have to do this, He said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. There's an echo in Jesus' answer there of Jeremiah 1 verse 10. And John goes on to say, they replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Well, John doesn't actually say what scripture they believed at that point, but surely it included Jeremiah 1 verse 10. You see, the significance of the temple is that is where God met with his people. That was how it was possible for people to know God and relate to him. And Jesus saves the temple By destroying the temple. Jesus, God's temple on earth, God with us is destroyed. So that we can be with God forever. You see, in Jesus, God has shown us supremely what his plan looks like in Jeremiah 1 verse 10. The Lord saves through judgment. The path to life goes through death. God's plan is resurrection. Jeremiah had only a promise. Jeremiah only ever saw the the destruction. We have seen the reality. And we need to hold on to that reality in our day. It might be our fate, like Jeremiah's, to be ignored and sidelined and opposed as we proclaim that Christ is Lord. And the consequences of that might be catastrophic, for our country, for our society, just as they were for the people of Jerusalem. But that, not, that would not ultimately be failure for us. You see, through death, God brings life. He can do that for us. He can do that for our society. He can do that for our nation. So what amazing hope that gives us. Even in gloomy days, we have hope that not even death can take away. And that means that if the future is as dire as even the, the times of the Guardian thinks it will be, even if it is far more so, we have hope. God uproots to plant again. God tears down to build. God speaks when the world is falling apart and God warns of judgement. But God's plan is resurrection. Amen.